Hi everyone, it's Tim Topham here and I just wanted to let you know about our first webinar of the year. This is a really exciting one. It's called Unfazed, Teaching Neurodivergent Students in 2024 with Confidence and Success. Have you ever been unsure about approaches for teaching students who present differently or who you're not sure how to reach in lessons? Perhaps you've taken on a neurodivergent student and just not feeling that confident about your approach. Maybe it feels really slow or difficult. We just want certainty that you're on the right track. Or perhaps you've taken on a student who you think might be neurodivergent but aren't sure and don't really know the next steps. How do you teach them? Do you talk to the parents? What do you say? Most teachers have so many questions about this. So we've teamed up with the incredibly experienced Selena Pistoresi, author of The Milestone Method and our original special needs teaching course, one of the most popular Inside Top Music Pro membership to answer all your questions. This is a totally free webinar. It's being held on Wednesday, the 14th of February at 8 a.m. Melbourne time, which is Tuesday, the 13th of February at 4 p.m. Eastern time, USA, which is also 9 p.m. London time. And we're going to be covering so many different things and answering every question that we possibly can. Things like how to recognize a student's learning needs upon meeting them for the first time, how to have an exact roadmap and pre-planned activities how to feel calm, cool and collected during lessons, even when students present difficult behavior. And if you already teach neurodivergent students, no problem. We're going to be providing fresh perspective and new material and of course, answering any of those tricky questions. And look, the information in this webinar actually is going to apply to a huge range of students with support needs, abilities and levels. They're not just for students with dyspraxia or dyslexia, or any specific diagnosis. These are skills which every teacher can find valuable for just about any student. So, can't wait to welcome you along to it. You can sign up and find out more at topmusic.co slash webinar. We will record it. And if you want any questions answered, feel free to send them to support at topmusic.co. Just use the subject unfazed questions, or you can post in any of our Facebook groups or on social media. Can't wait to see you there. Hey there, I'm Rachel Aaring, and you're listening to the Top Music Piano Podcast. Get inspired as we discuss creative resources, trends in piano pedagogy, ways to grow your income and streamline your studio, and new ways to engage your students each week. If you are a teacher who wants to go beyond the method books to create an innovative studio that fosters lifelong music makers, you've come to the right place. Hello, piano teachers. Today's episode is a little bit different, but you are going to love it. Peter Mack, who is the president of MTNA, is on the show, not as a guest, but as the host. He is going to be interviewing Tim Topham, who will be giving the keynote address at the upcoming MTNA conference in Atlanta. Peter Mack is a nationally renowned performer, clinician, and convention artist. Originally from Ireland, he now lives in Seattle, Washington, where he runs a successful private studio. He was professor of piano at Cornish College for 33 years. A choral scholar at Trinity College Dublin, Peter received his master's degree from the University of Cincinnati and his doctorate from the University of Washington. His students frequently win local, national, and even international competitions. Peter is the proud teacher of 20 MTNA competition national finalists and of three MTNA national first place winners. He has written for Keyboard Companion, the Clarion, and American Music Teacher. Peter is currently Washington State's Foundation Chair and serves on its nominating committee. Peter has adjudicated for Washington's Amazing Map Adjudications Program for 23 years. Here's Peter Mack interviewing Tim Topham. 
Hello, and welcome to the Integrated Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Peter Mack, your guest host for today's episode. I'm here to talk with Tim about Music Teachers National Association, uh, known in America as MTNA, of which I am president. MTNA is the oldest professional organization of its kind in America since 1876. It's been the top source for music teacher support with more than 500 chapters around the United States. 1876, you'll notice that our 150th anniversary is coming up in two years' time. Oh, it certainly is. It's going to be in Chicago. It's going to be very exciting. MTNA is dedicated to providing all sorts of opportunities for professional development for our members through our publications like American Music Teacher, grants, workshops, webinars, and conferences. And conferences is why we are here to talk to Tim today. MTNA's 2024 National Conference is taking place March the 16th through the 20th in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia where we expect close to 2,000 attendees to gather for a week of workshops, competitions, masterclasses, recitals. One of the conference highlights is Tim Topham, who will be giving the keynote address on Sunday morning. Tim, I'm eager to chat with you today about the conference and what's in store from your address. But first, Everybody in Australia knows you, and many, many, many people in America know you, but perhaps there are one or two living in very isolated communities who might know as much about you as we would like. So let's dig in a little bit to your background and your career trajectory. Tell us, in a recent interview you did for American Music Teacher, and that's the MTNA, national magazine that comes out every two months uh, with the fabulous Leela Viss. You provided a little bit of your background on how it shaped your path to where you are today. Could you share a little bit of that for our American listeners? Just who are you? Yeah. Thanks, Peter. And thanks for being the host of my show today. It's nice to be <laughs> on the other side of the mic. Uh, and a huge thanks to Leela Viss, who uh, interviewed me for that article and put together what I think is a really unique uh, take on my approach and how I've come to be doing what I am doing. Uh, the, the title of the article is something like um, coming in the side door or something like that, which is, I think, a good explanation of how I've come to be uh, giving this keynote. In that I haven't been a concert performer for 30 years. I'm not a famous concert pianist. In fact, I'm not a very amazing concert performer full stop, to be honest with you, Peter. I haven't studied, uh, I haven't got my DMA, So, and I'm not a professor. And yet I'm still able to provide lots of what I hope will be fantastic food for thought for the teachers that come to the conference next year. So in sort of short answer to your question, I have... I think one of the reasons that I have come in from a different perspective is that I didn't be I didn't take that traditional path through my education. I didn't sort of finish my schooling and then go into a conservatory and study performance and then get all my exams and then do my doctorate in in performance and all those kinds of things. I instead I actually kind of gave up on music for quite some time, well in a formal sense anyway. I studied with um, an amazing teacher called Miss Mack, my local community teacher from the age of eight until about 12 when I decided that the classical music, and I'd done some grades through that period, 
wasn't really floating my boat and I was too cool for it. So I sh- wanted to do some jazz. So she connected me with an amazing jazz teacher in Melbourne who took me under his wing for a couple of years. Uh, and then I was like, eh, that's okay, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> By the last couple of years of school, I studied it as part of my schooling. I studied piano. Uh, and that was okay. But after the end of school, I really didn't study it formally uh, at all. But I was doing musical things. So, I was accompanying friends who might be singing or the odd exam student. Uh, I conducted orchestras for musical theatre. So, musical direction and musical theatre. I loved doing that. I remember doing The Hot Mikado and The Wizard of Oz and Grease and, you know, all those classic shows. Uh, so, I was getting lots of musical experience, but not sort of specifically on piano. And in actual fact, at that time, I was moving more into teaching. I was really into outdoor education, taking kids on school camps and trips and abseiling and canoeing and rock climbing and all of these, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. And it would be years later that I would come back to music teaching, specifically piano teaching. And that was after living and teaching a number of different subjects in multiple countries, lots of different places. And I think what it enabled me to do was take all of the experience of classroom teaching, outdoor education, leadership. I was ahead of a campus for a while. Bring all of that experience back to have a fresh look at piano pedagogy and go, what, you know, what are we doing and why are we doing it this way? And is that the best way? And what else could we do? And what's going to appeal to kids? All And that, just asking myself all those questions, which I don't think would have happened, Peter, if I had gone that traditional standard route through university and conservatories and things like that. So, I think it's that roundabout experience that I had in life that really enabled me to pull things apart, try things out. And that is really the genesis of the work that, that began the blog firstly, then moved into this podcast and then onto my membership and speaking and all of those kinds of things. Feeding on on some things you said. First off, my last name is Mac, M-A-C-K. So tell me about Miss Mac. Oh, <laughs> Miss M-A-C was Macendo. Oh, she was. Oh. Yeah, she was. Um, yeah, she was. She. My godmother actually connected my mum with her after I drove my family crazy playing a tiny little Casio keyboard on long car trips because back in those days there was no iPads or headphones or anything, so we're all no air conditioning either in hot summer in Australia, driving to Sydney 10 hours. And I don't know why, but they gave me this little keyboard and they thought, I reckon, I don't know, there's something about Tim loves it and he's making some kind of cool sounds. So, that's when they spoke to my godmother whose children had gone through Miss Mac and I connected with her. She was uh, she was a fabulous, fabulous influence on me. And then, then you said that you pretty early on started to conduct and that you would conduct. How did you have the courage to do that? Because I'm thinking that's just a terrifying thing. I've always been someone who is happy to try things out and take risks. And I just thought I could do that. I'd seen – so, when I was at school, I used to play – piano, I either was in the school musical or I would play piano in the band. So, I would see how people would teach the songs and conduct and I thought, I could do that. How hard can that be? <laughs> and so, I think the first, the first show I did was Grease and there was just a little band, like four or five piece band. But I distinctly remember the most challenging one was a orche- uh, full orchestra with a production of Oliver. 
uh, at the powerhouse players here in Melbourne. And that was, uh, you know, I had to find timpanies and like every, it was, it was huge. But I really relished the opportunity to just put myself out there and challenge myself. And I wasn't taught to conduct. I kind of just gave it a shot and it kind of worked okay. <laughs> I'm I'm just so impressed by by that because sort of and I'm thinking as I'm comparing your background with mine how I did well I I mean I went to college to start to study something else and then I switched but but I've been pretty much the the I went and got a doctorate and played concerts and the whole thing but I would be terrified to conduct <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking. You maybe because nobody told you that it was really really difficult. You were just like I could do that. Yeah, and that's then- pretty. That's that's absolutely true. Nobody did say it was difficult, and and I've always been an organizer of people and someone who's happy to stand up and lead. And you know, being a classroom teacher for a long time, I was quite confident in front of groups and organizing people. So I think that probably helped. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just I'm so impressed by that. I I mean I'm impressed by everything, but still. The and then um I am you you write books, I understand. That's also something that's like terrifyingly difficult except except is it you you've a new book, don't you? I, I yes, thank you. Yeah. So No Book Beginners, which is a funny name for a book, but it's it describes my approach to teaching beginner piano students without books for the first five to up to 10 lessons, let's say, just to delay reading. And there's lots of great research around why that's a good thing to do. And hey, Peter, it's just a hell of a lot more fun to not teach reading in those first few lessons. But that aside, yeah, the book book was uh, a journey that I'd wanted to, to complete for probably four years. And I just finally set my mind to it this year. And I said, I'm going to do it. And I finished writing it in about April and then we've had the last six months, this is 2023, to edit and proof and all that kind of stuff. And it's literally going to be launched uh, in December. And then again, I'll be mentioning it uh, in MTNA, which I'm very delighted to be able to share it with the Americans over there too. Good. Who is uh, publishing it? Uh, Self-published. So, my company, Top Music. Top Music. Great. Okay. Um, and if if Americans want to buy it, is it going to be on Amazon? Is it going to be on? How do we get it? Yeah, so you can either get the PDF from topmusic.co/book, or it will be available on Kindle and Amazon in a paperback to print and deliver. From yeah, sh- should be from December. So by the time people are hearing this, it should well and truly be available. We've also got the audio book available too. Yours truly reading it. Which is available <laughs> at topmusic.co/book as well. Uh huh. If and so, who should buy it and why? Any piano teacher who has wondered whether opening up a method book in the first lesson and pointing to middle C on the page and showing a student middle C and counting half notes and quarter notes, any teacher who's ever questioned whether that might not be the most exciting, fun, and musical thing to do in a first lesson should get this book. And in fact, any teacher that is doing that and not questioning it should also get this book because I'm hoping that it will make you question it. Because really, fundamentally, what I've learned over the last 10 years of working with teachers and teaching myself is that there are so many musical things that we can do in those first lessons that can set a student up for a much better experience later on than reading. For example, singing, just making and normalizing singing as a part of music education and learning, particularly for piano students, 
can have a huge benefit later on if they want to play by ear or if they're doing college auditions or exams or anything like that. Being able to pitch match, sing back pitches, clap back rhythms, being able to hear tonal centers and dominant and tonic harmony, all of these things are standard things that we want students to be able to do, but we often don't. Or if we do, it's later on when suddenly we go, oh my goodness, they, we'd never taught this. We need to get them to do this. So I bring all of that into structured lesson plans for those first five to 10 lessons that teachers, any teacher can use uh, either alongside their method or instead of their method for a few weeks. So we have teachers, some teachers will use the whole 10 weeks. Some teachers will use the first three notebook lessons and then start introducing reading, but continue the notebook along the side. It really can be used quite flexibly. Uh, it's a framework rather than a method. So you can kind of scaffold your own teaching around it. Have you been using this method or have is this the way you've been teaching your own students? Yes, yeah. And I, and I tell the story at the start of the book of the work that I did in 2015 when I came to my first speak at NCKP, actually. So the speaking at MTNA will be almost a decade since I first spoke in America. But at that conference, I was introduced to music learning theory and Dr. Edwin Gordon. And that really sort of may, may gave, gave credence or background to the thoughts that I had already been having about beginner lessons. And so I went and decided to challenge myself, it comes back to a little bit like the conducting, to challenge myself to take on a new student who I had just got, Josh, and teach him with no books for 10 weeks, which is a term in Australia. And I just went, all right, I'm going to do it and let's see what happens. Let's see the impact on him. Let's see how he engages with it. And I'm going to document what I do and try it and then share it if it, if it works. And, if, and it did work incredibly well. And we've now had well over a thousand teachers use it. And so the book has a lot of comments about uh, the other teachers' experience with it. And one thing that I'm really proud of is that it has sparked other teachers' somewhat latent creativity in many cases. And these teachers that really said to me, I, you know, I'm not creative enough or I'm not creative at all suddenly you're going, oh my goodness, this is how this, this is so much fun. This is what I can do. And they're taking the ideas and, and running with it and making it their own and building, making it even more impressive and adding costumes to this improvisation and stories over here. And oh, it's just been such a remarkable thing to experience. I, I think if I have one regret in, uh, in my musical progress or my musical career, it's I wish that I could go back in time and reteach the students that I started 30 years ago when I started teaching. Um, because I just, I, I was insecure and I didn't know what I was doing. And so, and I had been taught with the middle C and this is middle C and you play these notes and so on. And, so, and, and of course I was, you know, I had strict teachers, so I was a strict teacher and I wish that I could take all that back. I think a lot of teachers will feel the same. And in fact, I, I also taught as my, my teacher, who was a fabulous, fantastic teacher, but she did teach with the John Thompson method and minims and quavers <laughs> and whatever is in, in lesson one and both thumbs on middle C, which is like the most yep, yep, uncomfortable yep. position. So I think every teacher is in that position. And all we can do is obviously moving forward, try and do better. 
But but having said that, I'm not going to to diss John Thompson because the the pieces. I mean, I can still play some of the pieces. <laughs> you know, Swans on the Lake, or I mean, it, it just it's sort of oh, I remember this so well. So the, the so 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 even though we maybe don't teach the middle C position the 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 way that we used to, there was a lot. There was a lot. That, anyway, we're, yeah. We're, well, and I should <laughs> say, Peter, I've, uh, method books are fantastic. Like they are the best re- way to teach reading hands down they are great and there's a really good reason why they're so popular 100% I still use them they're great all I am saying is is it what we should be doing in the first few lessons and I would say no but then teachers go well Tim help me what do I do instead and that's what the book answers so we're thrilled that you're coming to Atlanta. And what when you what did you think when we asked you to be the keynote speaker? You you were supposed to come to Chicago. We so we we had the this wonderful conference planned for Chicago in was it 2020? 20, yes, it was. Yes, March. And, you know, March of 2020. Did 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 anything happen in March of 2020 that stopped the world? Oh goodness! No, I remember uh, keeping in touch with with your uh, Gary and the team there, and going, "Oh my goodness, what's happening?" And it was on for a while, and then it was no. like, eventually, no, it's not going to happen. Anyway, let's not let's not relive that time. <laughs> but I was coming to that conference, um, not to keynote, but I was doing some creative masterclasses and and some sessions. So I was really looking forward to it. So I'm delighted that you've invited me back. And and in answer to your question, I was quite shocked to be honest and 100% honored because I've always loved MTNA and I've been a member for a while even though I'm on the other side of the world I follow what you do I read all your emails uh, I know many of the presidents and committee and board members etc and so in in some ways it gave me a feeling that what I've been spending and working incredibly hard on since 2010 is being respected in some way and and being encouraged because when I first spoke back in that 2015 conference, there was not a lot around about creativity in music teaching. It has changed a heap, hasn't it, Peter, in, in literally just 10, 15 years? Yes. You bring to a, a question that I was thinking about asking later on, which is how how is the climate or how is the the profession or how do how how have attitudes changed in the last i mean in the last 5 years much the last 10 years much the last 20 years hugely hugely yes well in in that nckp that i spoke at there was there was no creative track or creative committee i would have been, i was teaching talking about pop music i mean I, i'm just delighted that sam holland and ryan green etc gave me the opportunity to speak at that conference this crazy aussie from the other side of the world talking about pop music at this pretty uh, highbrow conference one might say and now because i went last year or this year was it this year no it was this year we we actually we met up didn't we peter and there was this whole conference committees around creativity and modernizing music and of course the diversity Diversity in music now is a huge thing, and you know there are so there has been a huge amount of change in the last five years, in particularly regarding playing music about from unknown composers and previously underrepresented communities, reaching out to other countries and translating things and being more open. I think that's been a huge 
huge benefit to our profession. And then, yes, going back the last 10 years, we've got we've had this move and an openness now, which is really all I asked for and, and other people working in this area of creativity. It's just an openness to be more flexible and ask questions and not necessarily just always go down this one path of the standard traditional lesson. Yes. Um, I'm I'm thinking back to when you said the standard traditional way of thinking. There, there, are, there are two lovely videos. And so I grew up in Ireland, even though I've lived in the US since 1984. Um, but there, the two videos that I'm thinking of, they're about the exam systems and people exams and one of them is set in Australia and one of them is set in Ireland and they're they're documentaries and you just see people preparing for their exams and talking about and it's lovely it's just but um the I grew up in the exam system and just just like you I I I I got bored with the pieces and my teachers felt that we should write, I got really good marks because we did them for a year and we would do the same three pieces for a oh. year. That was <laughs> I didn't realize of... you'd been through that system yes. as well. Oh, yes. gosh. And and I think that the the even the, the people who do the exam system now have changed. That the that no longer are people doing pieces, just those three pieces for a year in the hope to, to do an exam. It's something that's very different now. Yes. Look, I, I, I'm sure there are still teachers out there who have that limited uh, breadth of repertoire with their, with their students, but I think it is shrinking. And I think more teacher, more and more teachers are realizing that you have to have a repertoire-rich approach to teaching. And if that means that students can't do an exam a year, then so be it. Because, hey, I mean, the real reason why so many of the students in the exam based systems only do three pieces is because they're it's they're operating at the edge of their technical ability every year and it just gets harder and harder and so they only have time to do those pieces uh whereas you know there again there's just so much benefit and value that comes out of these activities like improvising and creating music and playing by ear and things like that that will improve students ability to read and to sight read and to perform uh, so it's it's not about any of this stuff being sort of playtime or candy or anything like that it's it's actually a really pedagogically sound way to build deeper connections and meaning for students and better understanding I remember as uh, when I was starting out and I was starting to put kids in competitions I remember an older teacher telling me, um, you've made the classic mistake of a young teacher. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? What are you talking about? She said, every piece is, is too difficult. You said the outer limit of their creativity. It took me a long time to realize that you can have a piece that a student learns just for enjoyment, just for love, just to show. And so my students now, they're, if they're doing a competition, I like doing competitions, if they're doing competition or if they're doing an exam or if they're doing a recital or something, there are going to be some pieces that are way easier. Than way easier, the, yes. Do. Just Absolutely. because, isn't it lovely for everybody? Yes, Hundred percent, and and even easier than easy, just to keep their sight reading up. I mean, let's not try and sight read at that grade six that they're at. Let's do a whole lot of sight reading at grade one or lower, and just you know get faster and more confident at it. Yeah, a hundred percent, so important. 
one of your biggest supporters and fans in America in the, and in MTNA is a uh, past president called Martha Hilly. Oh, and Martha. Is, we love Hilly. She's, she's like a, a legend in Texas. And she, she and I remember going to a talk that she was giving about the, the way she structures her lessons. And one of the things is she has a cup. And in the cup, there are laminated little sheets of music, uh, just just one line. And, she, and when the student comes in, she says, pick one. And they pick one, and that's their sight reading. Mm, they, just, nice. they just do that at the start, and then they put it back in the cup, and then they go to the on with the other stuff. But it's, I thought, what a lovely – it's just a tiny little bit of everything always. Yes, nice, simple idea that any teacher listening could try out. I love it. I don't know if, if you've already said, what are you going to talk about? <laughs> well, no, I don't think we did cover that. So I, I've been, I've done a lot of thought about this and I was initially going to speak about this notebook approach, um, but I actually want to do something a bit bigger because it's music teachers and not just piano teachers and the notebook beginners approach is all about piano teachers. I thought, how can I kind of combine the two somewhat. And so, I've been fascinated for a long time by vision and visionaries. People, I mean, there and there are people with big visions. So, when you think of the Elon Musk, the vision is we want to colonize Mars. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that one. Uh, and there's lots of people with smaller visions. And, I, and everybody, even if they don't think they're a visionary, they do have visions because we have visions for what our children's future will be like. We have visions for what our bathroom remodeling will look like, our garden once we've had the landscapers in. So, we all understand this idea about vision. But I see it really lacking in music teachers in regard to their studios. And in some ways, it comes back again to this teaching like you were taught. We kind of, many teachers fall into teaching in some ways. It's not always a plan. For some people, it's a very considered and planned thing. But for some teachers, it's when they were 18, they were asked to teach the kid next door and they kind of got into it. And we don't often sort of sit back and have take that time to go, why am I doing this? And what what am I trying to achieve here? What is my vision for my students? but also for me and my studio. And this also comes up when I coach teachers. Perhaps they're struggling and they don't have enough income or they're burnt out or they're not enjoying things. Oftentimes, I'll say, well, you know, what, what are you trying to do? What is your goal? How much income do you need? All of these kinds of questions. And most of the time, teachers haven't really considered them. And so, what I want to do as part of my keynote next year is – Share examples of a vision and visionaries and how how it works inside and outside music, and then give the teachers there uh, a four step framework for achieving their vision, which is something that I've used time and time again to achieve my own um, things in my business and my teaching. And I'm going to use the teaching with no books as the example for teachers. So the vision being. I want as many teachers in the world to reconsider their beginner lessons and do some more creative things before they teach reading. That's my vision. And step through the framework. How did I actually get that to reality where teachers are actually doing that? So, I hope, does that make sense? That's kind of roundabout, but that's the big picture. Be more specific. <laughs> it sounds lovely, but I don't still quite understand what, what exactly you're, you're going to do. Well, I think what, what I want to do is 
challenge teachers to think about what the vision is for their their students and their studio. And I, as, and I think they're two distinct things. So we, we have student goals, the goals that we believe students should achieve. So we might have, I, I'm a, I might be a competition kind of teacher who just, is known for and loves preparing students for competitions and they do really, really well and I charge hundreds of dollars an hour and I'm amazing at it. Or I might be the beginner teacher who just loves teaching under 10-year-olds or preschoolers or whatever it is. Uh, what is the goal for the student? What are they going to achieve? What are they going to look like? What are the skills that they're going to have? Have we actually thought that through? Because I think, again, some teachers, particularly when we get to that intermediate stage, so they finish the method book, we enter the intermediate stage where there's this period of years and years where there's no book to follow or recipe cards or anything like that. And we kind of have to make it up as we go. And again, a lot of teachers that I coach with this, it comes back to, well, what, are you, what kind of students are you trying to create at the end of this period? Do you want them to be able to perform on stage with a tuxedo or do you want them to be able to start a band with their mates in a garage and play a keyboard? And it's going to be different for different students. But let's think about it and let's have that end goal in mind. And, and for many students, teenagers and adults, you're going to be needing to work this goal thing out with them. But we, we all often in our minds will still have that picture. I, you know, I'm not the kind of teacher that parents will bring their child to in order to do competitions or festivals or blitz exams. They come to me because they want the pop and the courting and they want their children to love composing and all those kinds of things. So, what is that for you? That's my one, one question. The other side of it is what is your goal? So, particularly your financial goals because, again, if teachers are teaching for a living and I know not all teachers do but a lot do, you need to know what your financial goal is in order to set up your studio the right way. Otherwise, you may never get to that financial goal. And so that's why you know, teachers often need to consider crossover lessons or pairs or small groups and things like that if there's a certain financial uh, goal that they need to hit. And so it, trying to mix these two things in with a big overarching vision is what I want to challenge uh, teachers to think about. And if, for example, they're not so worried about the vision for their studio and maybe they only teach five students and they're having great fun with that. Is there another vision? Is there something, a project in the back of their head, the method that they always wanted to write or the composer they want to be that could be their vision that we, I could again sort of encourage them? And, and really what I want to do is give them a bit of a plan of action of how they could get there and the confidence and some empowerment that, yes, we can give this a go. Hmm. I think you hit on something that has been, we've talked about changes that have happened in the last few decades. And one of them is that we were thought of as being artists who did it for the love of the art. And our reward was just the enjoyment of art. And we were not business people. And even and talking about money, you know, they, they, they talk about Chopin when when he taught lessons that the students, there was a teapot on the uh, mantelpiece. On the mantelpiece, that's right. Mm. And he would leave and the student would put the cash in the teapot and put the lid on the teapot. And then he would come back as if nothing had happened. But you know that as soon as the student left, he would run over to the teapot. <laughs> But but there was this stigma of sort of we are we are artists we are not business people. I think that's so gone. 
that so we, we are um and there and the idea that you have a financial goal in mind and that you can plan towards that rather than just falling into it i think that's that's something that very new development mm, yeah and so important uh it, because we are if we want to be seen as professionals uh you know there, there's there, there is that stigma that, you know, we should get a real job or we're babysitters or whatever it is. I mean, and I think that's lessening now because teachers are becoming more professional. They're realizing, yeah, I do need a separate bank account for my business. I do need to look at ways that I spend money as an investment in my business and the professional development I need and, and, and charging what they're worth. And, you know, all of these things, and I've been pushing this for years and years, and I'm glad, yeah, I agree Peter, it has changed over time, but we still have a bit more work to do. And I think the next step is to go, okay, well, we're thinking a bit more business-like, but if you are a business, then you tend to have budgets. I'm not not saying that we all have to go and create a budget, but a budget does suppose that you have thought out a plan of action into the future for a set amount of time. And that's, I think, the missing step for many teachers. That, And I think we can gain a lot by doing that. Mm-hmm. Do you think I, I remember being at a, a competition, the, the final of a competition, and sitting beside a teacher called Marjorie Lee, who was from Washington, DC, and she's a very famous teacher. And one of her students was playing, and she was playing the Scriabin fantasy, which is this incredibly difficult, big, big, big piece. And I said, She's very good. And Marjorie said, I've had her since she was four. And I I think that that's extraordinary because I have I have students who play very well, but I've never had them since they were four. Because I think that's that sort of starting students is and and doing the early lessons that's a gift. That's that's a skill. That's a skill set that I've as I said. I wish I could go back and apologize to my my students that I started. And so I very, very happily will take if a teacher feels, you know, it's time for them to go to somebody else, or if they want to do the bigger repertoire, if they want to do that, I'm very happy to take them. But I don't, I don't bring them from the start to that. I, 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 I use other teachers' starting points, and then I can refine or polish or whatever. But and as I hear you talk, it seems to me that you feel the same way that sort of you find your thing that you're best at. And then you you do that. But then do, do you feel that that Marjorie is just the incredible exception? Or do you think we can do everything? Hmm, that's a really good question. Uh, and it's interesting because just last month we brought out a new course about teaching advancing students because I saw and, and I had my own experience where I thought, oh, am I really good enough to teach an advanced level student? Uh, really questioned it, imposter syndrome, all of that kind of stuff. And so we created a course to try and help teachers who are open to it and interested in it, going not just giving away their students, but actually taking on some of those first initial early advanced works and 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 giving them guidance around how to do that and how best to what what they need to know to do that because i i think it's quite sad that yeah we some teachers can work from ages 4 to 14 get them over that identity hump where they want to give up around 14 and then they hand them over to another teacher anyway and they lose all of that goodwill and the the work that they've done now i know not all teachers want to teach advanced uh, students but I think there will be some, and I'm hoping that we're sort of helping those teachers. Uh, 
short the short answer though i guess is i think it just depends on the on the on the teacher i think few teachers would probably go from four to highly advanced playing confidently i think it's a real challenge and i think there is more benefit from a marketing perspective particularly to be known for a certain skill set as you mentioned so i had a real skill set for taking on transfer students who are about to quit and keeping them going and getting them back into music and giving them a really modern innovative kind of lesson approach that that was my thing that's what i really loved so i loved working with sort of teenagers 10 10 to 20 year olds ish um, but I know plenty of teachers in our membership love preschoolers and just want to work with under six-year-olds, which is what you were saying, not not your thing and not my thing either. But that's great that it's their thing. So I, I do think there's there's a benefit in that because you can market yourself as specifically able and skilled to work with a particular group or type of student. And that's where you're going to get the most passion and benefit from yourself as well. You're going to enjoy it more. I I have one six-year-old right now, and I have her because her mother is a really good friend of mine and a music teacher. And so, um, but the energy that I have to expand ex- in that um, in that lesson, it's more than I'm just exhausted at yeah. the end. <laughs> yeah. Six-year-old, she's I adorable. Know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you oh. have to give so much, don't you, to in, to inspire and motivate and be excited and. You got to get off the bench and on the floor and all you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's the um, Marjorie said about trans. She, I don't know if she even takes transfer students. I mean, she's really got her her act sort of that she knows what she does. But she said, um, I just find I spend so much time correcting other people's mistakes and thinking. Well, you know, I know how to correct other people's mistakes, but my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> that's another. That's another story. That's yes. What so we've we've talked about how that a challenge has been to for us to think of ourselves as business people rather than the artists that we were brought up to 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 be. What what do you think? Can you think of any other challenges that we have as music teachers in twenty twenty three? That's a great question, and I think the most obvious one is a change that we're already seeing, which is the changing role of the teacher from the wise sage, know it all, have all the answers, can do everything, and going to fill up that empty bucket of, you know, which is the schooling model that we've all lived through for the last 30, well, since the industrial age, I guess, to a model where the student, we we think more of a student first or a student-centered way, giving students more autonomy, which self-determination theory and the research all backs up is really important for self-motivation. But by giving them more autonomy, we, our role starts to change actually. Um, In actual fact, I've got, uh, let me find, I've got a great quote from um, a friend of mine, Susan Elridge, who is a lecturer in music entrepreneurship here at the Melbourne Conservatorium. And I've got this quote from her that I've used in some of my presentations. Uh, let me read it. It's quite short, but I think it speaks to this, this challenge. Um, she said, we've come from a teaching model historically very teacher-led with teachers in control. Now we're moving to an understanding that good pedagogy isn't teacher-led. Instead, teachers are asking students questions and we have much less control, but that's actually what good teaching looks like. So, and this kind of speaks to your question, what if we're in this funny phase of music education of people moving much more to a teaching that's more inquiry-led 
which takes away the control from the teacher being the expert. What is my purpose now as a teacher if I'm not the holder of the knowledge? Uh, it's a little bit like in my, uh, my experience taking on transfer students, particularly teenagers, if they're really determined to learn things on YouTube and they don't want to learn music, then a lot of teachers will go, well, what's, what's my, what can I do? I, my, go, my job is to teach reading. That's kind of what music teachers do. So if I'm not teaching reading, what, what is there to do? And so there's this questioning going on. Well, in actual fact, there's lots of things you can do because the musicality and the dynamics and articulation and use of the instrument and the body and all of these things are not things that a YouTube tutorial will ever teach. Uh, but just finishing off Susan's quote, it's a really uncomfortable place to be, especially if you've got a teaching practice that's really been about you having all the answers. So I think this is a challenge for teachers and it's going to um, in change over time as we become a little bit more student-centered in our teaching and it's happening in schools as well to some extent although it's a lot harder in a classroom setting for us we're lucky one-on-one -on -one, we can be more student-centered we can give them more autonomy more choice work more with them towards their goals but the days of just saying right this is you know it's time to do beethoven's sonata because that's what you do next uh is i think those days are going to be changing and that that will be a challenge for teachers i i don't know it, when when you said go back to sort of the teacher is the all seeing all wise sage and and that when I was growing up in Ireland I had some incredibly wonderful teachers I had one especially called Frank Heenan who is just he was such a loving genius and and he 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 was the head of the College of Music he's still alive you know but but he's the head of the College of Music in Dublin but I remember him teaching and dancing around the room and just. I know he was just so so full of, sort of joy with music, but I also had a teacher who was um, not physically abusive, but sort of mentally abusive. In that I was everything I did was wrong, and they used to ask um, the questions that have no answers, which is, you know, did did you put fourth finger on that B flat? And of course I hadn't. And did was did I tell you to put fourth finger on that B flat? Yes, you did, because it's a big four written. Why didn't you put fourth finger on that B flat? And it's sort of, it's just a, a caring question, but it's really like a stiletto, you know, because... Yeah. <laughs> because there's no answer. And when you're a child, you're, I don't know why I didn't put it, you know, because I and and a bunch of those and the kid will be in tears. And I think and sometimes when I see the old guard giving master classes, I think this is nasty. You know, this is just this is this is unpleasant. This is this is maybe not physically abusive, but this is un, I, I do not want I would never want to. To, to have that person as my teacher. Um, it's, I, I think it's something that when you say going to more student-centered, I think that's one of the, the wonderful things that's happened is the realization that, that the, the sage is not automatically deserving of respect just because they are the teacher. Mm. And, and walking alongside the student rather than dictating to them, I think is the metaphor or the analogy that, that works. You know, being more of a coach a mentor, a guide rather than, I mean, yeah, the dictator because, the, you know, kids have everything on, on their phone. YouTube can solve any question basically. <laughs> it's like, And that's only going to get more and more common as AI has more and more of an influence. And, and so we do have to just rethink our role and our goals. And in actual fact, you know, I look at software like uh, Piano Marvel 
not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's uh, it's pretty clever software for teaching note reading effectively, and it does it without any human interaction. And it wouldn't surprise me if software like that becomes even better potentially because it's gamified and whatever else to help students learn the the skill of let's say note reading. But does that teach them interpretation and musicality and all those things? No, it doesn't. So that's where our roles potentially changes. So. For teachers listening who really think 99% of their job is to teach music reading, they're the ones who may need to reconsider what their role will become in the future as as things change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's, I mean, we're reinventing ourselves or going out of business. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, teachers are losing students. And that was another reason I wanted to put right No Book Beginners was because if we can set them up right from the beginning, you're more likely to keep these students engaged because they'll be more successful and they'll have more fun and you'll have better rapport with them and you'll be having more fun as well. Like All of these things lead to, hopefully, more students continuing music education. That's what we want. In music education in Australia, in, in America, we've had a focusing on what's called STEM, which is the the, the fields of the science, basically the science and mathematics fields, um, and away from the arts. And so schools have have lost bands and have lost music and have and so the that's a very depressing thing that is happening. And it puts more, we become even more than we were, the people who introduced them to the world of music, because now they're not getting it in the schools the same way. Is that happening in Australia as well? Yeah, sadly. I, I don't think it's perhaps quite as uh, advanced as it is in America, but it is certainly happening here as well. We have a lot of music classes being cancelled, music specialists in primary schools just not there at all so it's down to the classroom teachers you know one day of music school training to teach music you know things like that it's not good uh and i'm not sure how that's how that will resolve the um i mean the people say you know it should be steam which is your yes i've heard that too a for the arts but the and and then also one of the things that people say is, you know how if people have music in their curriculum, then they get better science test results. Yes. yes. And on the one hand, you know, well, hey, you know, look, it just shows how wonderful music is and it helps you. But but it's still, I don't like that way of thinking in a way because it says the important thing is to put the science grades up. And if music that then that's music's only function whereas what music really does is enrich lives and and just make our lives so much more so so much more vision so much more enjoyment rich rich and full that's right yeah it's nice to be known you know music education to be known to be successful in helping other subjects but i agree i agree uh it really should stand on its own two feet and, and look, for, for teachers who are, are sad about that I- issue in schools as well, that's even more of a reason to keep up the work that you're doing with your students in your studios because uh, that may be the only experience that our students get. Who do you find inspires you to keep going? Who, do, who are you looking at now to say, this is someone that, that's got such a great viewpoint that I can't wait to hear? You, you said, is it Susan Eldridge? Yes, Susan Eldridge. Yeah, she's yeah, she's been a long time uh, friend and, and colleague. Uh, I, I think in answer to your question, with the people that inspire me are the teachers we work with day to day at Top Music, who 
tell us, you know, what's going on. Uh, we try and help them and they, and they give us these, you know, amazing stories we hear of the success they're having, how they feel as a teacher of those students who are having those aha moments. We know that that's, you know, the, the, the reason we teach those light bulb moments for students that we can be a part of and the connection we have with their families. So I do get really inspired by the teachers who are out there working super hard every day and it's a hard job. I think classroom teaching, if you can manage a class, classroom teaching is actually an easier job and less exhausting than one-on-one teaching. When you're doing one-on-one teaching, you are there, you are on on the ball all the time. And if it's a six-year-old, as you said, Peter, it's utterly ex- <laughs> exhausting. So, I'm, yeah, that, that that's the teachers do inspire me and it's the reason I keep doing more and more of what I can to support them. And I think... From a business perspective, I actually get a lot of inspiration from outside music. And so, when I came to create my first course and the membership and, and other elements of my business, I was inspired by what I was learning from other fields, internet marketing fields, um, even you know the big entrepreneurs. I love reading biographies. And I read Richard Branson's biography when I was about 16 and I still remember it. Uh, Losing My Virginity, it was called. Brilliant book. Uh, So inspiring. And I love those kind of inspiring tales of entrepreneurship. And so, that's kind of my inspiration business-wise and the pedagogy side comes from the teachers we work with. Mm, mm, Lovely. Is is there a person when you 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 finish teaching and your last student has shut the door and you are laying back to relax? What music are you going to put on? <laughs> you're you're not going to believe it. Most people don't believe what I'm about to say. I, my tastes are very eclectic, and so I will listen to classical piano sometimes or classical music. But I actually mainly listen to dance music. Electronic EDM, electronic dance music, specifically <laughs> house music, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. If, and, pro- and what's called progressive house, which is a fairly repetitive. I don't know. I, I just I like it from. I think it it reminds me back, Peter, of my clubbing days and that time of my life. And I don't know. I can sit there and groove along and just enjoy it. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that is not the answer that I no. expect. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep you on your toes. And so, if we wanted to, like, what would be the, your your favorite three EDM tracks? Oh, gosh. Uh, oh, wow. You put me on the spot. In fact, I can probably tell you because if I go to my Spotify, it will show me. What have I got? Oh, what have I got at the moment? Let's have a look here. My 2023 playlist. Uh, let's have a look. Oh, I love. There's a track called um, Gratitude by Above and Beyond. Uh, and there's an called an anime PM mix, which is one of my all-time favorites of this year. We've also got uh, what's another one? Oh, so there's this guy called Ulrich Schnauss. What a fantastic name! German com- um, producer who has a track. It's actually back from it's quite old, but it's called Gone Forever, and it's a long track. It's eight minutes, and it's just. Oh, there's something. It's not actually a dance track, but it's electronic music, which I love. So that's a little bit different. And um, if you want something kind of different, again, then something like uh, That's Life by Scores, S-C-O-R-Z, 
uh, is going to be quite interesting for people to listen to. But, you know, the thing I love about that music is I, all of my musical experience has been very chord-based. I love chords and harmony. I, I used to love getting on a pipe organ when I was a kid and, you know, thumping out some big chords. I love the opening chords of Sanson's piano, um, organ concerto, you know, all of that stuff. I love big, thick, rich harmony. And a lot of these tracks that I listen to have, to my mind, really stunning chordal movement and harmony. And I don't know, it, it's something about it. it's quite hypnotic almost and the re- repetition. I, I just I just love it. And then I love going to the piano and trying to play the chord progressions. So that's, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said any of that or given out any of my playlists before. So there this you go, Peter. <laughs> Do you listen to Jacob Collier? He's um, an American. Uh, no, he's not. He's a, an English. Yeah, I've actually uh, interviewed him. You've, oh, my goodness. Yeah, okay. he's, he was on the podcast, I don't know, a couple of years ago now. Yeah, he, he, amazing. Well, I mean, he, he's a, I actually think he's from another planet. I mean, he's so talented, like beyond comprehension. He's an arranger, and he came to prominence because he would stay in his room as a teenager and arrange things like the Flintstones theme, and he would sing all the parts, and he would play all the parts, and he could he could and then um, a world of uh, pure imagination, and I mean all these wonderful things, and now he's a global superstar. Yeah, um, the concerts and, uh, and the sing he gets the crowd singing in harmony, and he I don't know if you, have you seen those clips? Yes, like oh. yes, yes, yes. It's Very Jacob, cool, and, and he 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 beautifully brings us to the MTNA uh, conference because now he's not coming to the MTNA conference, but he's nominated for a Grammy this year with a group called Sage, and Sage one is S A J E, and the J in Sage it's for for best arrangement the 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 five of them together. Um, the J stands for John A Kendrick, and John A Kendrick is singing at our gala. She and we 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 asked her. Um, I, I live in Seattle, and she lives in Seattle, and so it's there's 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 no there's no greater perk when when being in a position of being able to ask <laughs> absolutely and to ask your friends to do things. And so I asked her, would she sing at our gala um, before she was nominated? for a Grammy with Jacob Collier. But now she's waiting for a Grammy, so her fee would probably have doubled. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Well, if anyone, I've just looked it up. Our episode is uh, episode 200 of the podcast. We're almost at 400, so it was a couple of years ago. Uh, topmusic.co slash episode 200. You should be able to listen to the Jacob Collier interview. I'm I'm so, you are light years ahead of everybody. <laughs> It took some work to to be able to connect with him, but I'm so glad I did. And it was a little bit earlier before he had the whole world tours and things, so I managed to snap him up. There's a picture of him at the Grammys a few years ago, and it's sort of like he needs a, a shopping basket just to carry them all. Because <laughs> Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask? Is there anything that you think, oh, I wish that he had... Uh. <laughs> I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of ground and some some new ground, and I hope my regular listeners have enjoyed having a new host. So thank you, Peter, for <laughs> for taking on the interviewer role. It's been fun. I I will I will have you know that to to prepare for this, I I am drinking uh, lemongrass and ginger with lemon myrtle tea that is made by E C Choate and Company P T Y Limited. Yeah, um, in Australia. Terry Hills in New South Wales. And I sweetened it with 
honey that is made uh, 100% australian honey uh-huh. um, and i'm looking for the for the the beechworth beechworth honey. Uh, yeah everyone knows beechworth honey here yes. are they really famous is yeah, this very. Del- yes and, so and lemon myrtle is yeah one of our native species of trees so there you go Nice work. Even though I'm I'm from Ireland, my grandmother, uh, emig- I have an uncle in Sydney, and my grandmother lived in D.Y. Oh, yes, and on the beaches D-Y. of Sydney. Yes, exactly. And um, she used to she used to swim every day, which is probably what kept her alive for so very very long. I I am honored that you that you asked me to interview you, and I am so excited that that you're coming to Atlanta. Thank you so much for having me. Everyone can come to Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should we should tell people where to go in order to get their ticket as well. I assume MTNA. MTNA. If you go to mtna.org, mtna.org, the first thing that will hit you is the banner that says conference. Um, and it come along be, and hang out with us. Yes, exactly. You yes. know, it's and it March will be a beautiful time to be in Atlanta. It's in the south. It's called the Peach Tree State. I mean, it's, it it'll be it'll be lovely. It's a it's a place I've never been, but everyone tells me I will love it. So I've given myself I don't know two or three days before the conference to do a little bit of exploring. Perfect. And I mean, there are so many wonderful things about it, but the food is just it, it is just out of this world. Well, yes. you'll have to show me where to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Peter. It's my pleasure, Tim. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Besides the fabulous accents, I loved the way Peter and Tim talked about the changing role of piano teachers and how teachers need a vision for themselves, their studios, and their students. Congratulations, Tim, on being chosen to give the keynote address at the MTNA conference. That's a really big deal. If you are looking for ways to expand your vision and meet students where they are at, the Top Music Pro membership has hundreds of resources for you. Whether you need help teaching advanced students, preschoolers, or pop songs, you will find everything you need inside of the membership. Go to topmusic.co to learn more. I'm Rachel Ehring, and you've been listening to the Top Music Piano Podcast. Until next time, have a wonderful week. How do you keep up to date with all the latest trends and research into music education? How do you connect with other teachers around the world and make sure your teaching stays fresh and relevant for students of all ages and stages both now and into the future? I created our Top Music Pro membership to be the one-stop shop for music teaching resources, training, support and community and I'd love for you to come and join us inside. With over 40 comprehensive training courses, hundreds of teaching demonstrations and lesson plans, free monthly sheet music, discounts, and all the business and pedagogy support you could ever need, Top Music Pro is the community you've been looking for. If you're ready to level up your learning from the podcast and join thousands of other teachers in our global network, head over to topmusicpro.com today.